0: Hi, welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ibi Edi and I'm co-hosting this episode with Selvi Ramalingam. Today we'll be discussing the use of AI in healthcare and we've got an amazing guest with us today. His name is Dr. Ajay Bakshi. He's a former neurosurgeon and neuroscientist. He went on to complete his Wharton Management Program at the Wharton Business School. He used to be... An ex um, McKinsey consultant, and he was ex CEO of Max Healthcare in America. He also went on to be the CEO at Manipal Hospitals and India Operations of IIHH and Parkway Hospitals. He has recently co founded Buddy Med Technologies, which is an AI based tech- health technology company that is working to merge modern med- medicine with computer science, it is essentially to benefit doctors and patients and essentially the whole healthcare ecosystem. So very welcome, Dr. Ba- Dr. Bakshi.
1: Um, so you have a very unique background. Can you please share your professional journey so far and what inspired you to start Budhima Technologies? Sure. So I've had a
2: long career, so I'll try to keep it short. Uh, I trained as a neurosurgeon in India way back in the 90s. Uh, I, uh, practiced neurosurgery, clinical neurosurgery in India for around four, five years. And then I moved to Philadelphia, uh, to do two things. Uh, I, I joined Drexel University's uh, neurobiology program to do stem cell research, which was a big passion of mine. And I also joined the Wharton School to learn business, a little bit of business. It wasn't a full MBA program, but it was a basic, uh, sort of a certificate program. Uh, So I did that for around three years and then I ended up in McKinsey, uh, New Jersey office, the Northeastern block. And I worked with McKinsey for almost six, seven years. Most of it was in the United States. Uh, Some of it was in the Middle East, in Dubai, in Riyadh, in Bahrain. And uh, I I got recruited by Max Healthcare to lead their hospital as a CEO. This was way, way back in 2011. Max Healthcare is one of the I would say top five private healthcare networks running out of North India. And that was a big change for me from being a management consultant to being a CEO of a large hospital. And so I did that for around three years. We grew the business a lot. Uh, And then I got headhunted by TPG, which is a private equity firm, which was uh, investing in Manipal hospitals and they asked me to lead Manipal. So I did that for another three and a half years or so and uh, by now we are around 2017-2018 and I actually quit Manipal to start my own AI company. I'll come back to why that happened Uh, but that for whatever reason uh, didn't work out Uh, and uh, I was invited to lead another hospital chain which is uh, Parkway which is the world's second largest hospital network after um, uh, HCA of the US. Uh, This is based out of Singapore uh, it's called IHH, and their India operations is what they wanted me to run. So I, I did that for another, maybe just under two years. And then finally, I was able to kick off Budimed Technologies, which is what I'm running now. So now I am a, a tech entrepreneur, uh, if you want to use that term. Uh, so I've been a neurosurgeon, I've been a management consultant, I've been a scientist, and I've been a CEO of hospitals uh, across India. And now I'm running an AI company. So, so it's not so brief, but that's my story.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Um, uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, can you tell me what buddhi means?
2: Yeah, so buddhi is a Sanskrit word for intelligence uh, and med means medical. So the idea was to bring intelligence into medicine and uh, of course we were referring to artificial intelligence but by virtue of being a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist. So I, I know a bit about intelligence and the main reason to start with was that I was seeing doctors being overwhelmed by just information and not being able to use that to make decisions. Uh, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is Uh, AI has made great progress over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, We have seen that in so many different areas. Uh, We can talk about that. But healthcare has not been benefited by that. So I was very keen to uh, do what our mission statement is now, merge modern medicine with computer science. So so that was the mission. And it was, of course, never to be completed mission. But the idea is how do we bring in computer science and the very exciting advances that computer science has brought to the world into medicine so that it can help doctors and it can help patients. So so that was the genesis of the company.
1: The name is quite fitting. I just wanted to hear that from you. Um, So electronic health records is one of the important aspects of artificial intelligence um, in healthcare. Are EHR commonly used in India?
2: Yeah. So uh, I I just take a step back before coming to India, electronic health records are data and AI is all about data, right? So because uh, if you uh, do a search, you'll see a very famous paper from Google published in 2012, which says that uh, a mediocre uh, quality algorithm working on very large data sets but learning will always defeat a fantastic algorithm working on small data sets. So we have moved into this new world where it's not so much about how good your code is, it's about how good your data is. So, so, so AI, AI is all about data, right? And, and then of course, what you do with the data matters as well. So EHR, uh, EHR is a very transaction focused uh, a record that is created in a hospital to take care of that episode. The problem of EHR world over and particularly so in the United States is that it's not interoperable and all scripts record cannot go to a, a, you know another ACERNA record. And of course, there are a lot of efforts to make it interoperable, but uh, there are challenge, huge challenges in making that happen. Uh, so what has happened in India, to answer your question, Selvi, is a lot of digitization of healthcare data has been pushed by insurance companies which has become insurance has become more and more uh, prevalent over the last 15 years or so there was hardly any insurance when i was a medical student now around 15 percent of indians have private health insurance so so that's a large number around 150 million people Uh, that's still small considering we are a 1.3 billion people in the country but it's the largest number. It's about half of the United States, right? Uh, so these insurers are telling hospitals that you must send us a, a word document or a PDF form and not a handwritten document. So when I, I was in training, I used to write my discharge summaries by hand, right? That, that's how it was done in the eighties and the nineties, but that changed in India because of the insurers putting pressure on the hospitals. Now, an EHR is a very advanced system which takes clinical information and stores that in the hospital servers. Most Indian hospitals do not have that. Most Indian hospitals have what is essentially a billing system to keep track of what was spent on that patient's care. Uh, and that billing system can throw out a bill and the doctor who's taking care of the patient can generate a two-page discharge summary These are the important documents that Indian hospitals deal with. But EHR, I would argue is probably less than 1% of Indian hospitals have EHR, the way you guys understand EHR.
1: So how long do you think um, it would take to implement EHR? It won't.
2: Because now we have, because see what has happened is the goal of EHR that was originally thought of has not been met in the US experience and most of Europe experience. The goal was to improve patient care. And to improve patient care, you need portability. I, I may go to five different hospitals over 10 years. And if I have to keep begging a hospital to shift my, and US healthcare still works on faxes. You, you probably know that, right? I and mean, hospitals send faxes to each other. It might've changed in the last few years, but it's, it's really bizarre. So uh, it won't happen in emerging markets like India because now we have AI. And that's part of what BudiMed is trying to do and actually not trying to do, we have done it. We are saying to hospitals that it doesn't matter in what format you write your discharge summary and your bill. Our AI can extract from it and codify it into a SNOMED code or an ICD-10 code or even a DRG code. So, So we don't need to force hospitals to adapt certain technologies as long as they're sending us a typewritten document. Uh, we can't deal with handwritten and AI and NLP formats are very uh, difficult to apply on medical handwritten, you know, doctors handwriting is very bad anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, we have now reached a stage in this world where technology can deal with the data that the hospital is creating without forcing the hospital to adapt adopt a certain EHR standard. Does that make sense? Do you you guys understand what I'm saying? Right,
1: I'm trying to grasp uh, what you said. So even within electronic records, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lack of interoperability and um, there's Fryer protocol to promote that and um, R to use some common data model, which you would be able to, it would be easy to extract data from. But from what you're saying, it's going to be, it may not be in the same format, but you might be using something like NLP to extract data and do analysis. Is exactly. that right? Exactly.
2: exactly. So, Obamacare had to spend upwards of $50 billion to force hospitals to, first of all, adopt EHR. And then, once they adopt it, they realize that, oh, they all have different formats and they're not interoperable. So, as a US citizen, uh, I, I don't think you can you can have a longitudinal health record, you don't have it it's fragmented over different health systems where you might have gone for your health, health issues. Right. Uh, So the, the idea that BudiMed is doing in itself and what India as a, as a country is also pursuing is that the patient or the citizen is the ultimate owner of their own healthcare data. It's not the hospital. It's not the insurer. It's not uh, the IT system. Uh, And there's a big uh, debate about that in the US, as you know, because Cerner feels it's their data, United Health feels it's their data, and Mount Sinai feels it's their data. Nobody wants to give it to anybody. And by the way, nobody even talks about the patient. So the Indian government has taken a stand that data is, it belongs to the patient, to the citizen, uh, and they should have control over it. And there's a very sophisticated system being developed, as we speak, a national digital health mission was announced uh, just about nine months ago by the prime minister. And that is uh, working to enforce this sort of uh, patient-centric view of health data in India. And that should happen over the next couple of years.
3: So I'm just gonna ask one question about that. So you said the patient owns the data what happens to the, to the information that you don't need, want the patient to see just yet until you've actually delivered that information to them? Is there yes. a way to separate information um, before the patient can see, you know, patient has had an opportunity to discuss with clinicians?
2: Yes. So, so IB the way it works is, as I said, there's a bunch of stuff that happens inside the hospital, but when the patient is being sent home, uh, two important documents are given to the patient, three actually, One is a discharge summary, which is a clinical summary. One is a bill. In India, a lot of patients pay by cash, so they need to see the bill very carefully. And uh, the third is a bunch of lab and radiology reports, right? the diagnostic reports. Now, these are anyway given to the patient. The internal case papers, what's happened in the ward round, what's happened in the operation theater, that is not typically given to the patient. So the hospital is already exercising its right to share with the patient what's relevant for the patient and for other doctors to take care of that patient and not share too much of inside detail, which is not useful, right? So um, your point is valid that uh, a patient can't, uh, well, actually there are uh, court cases in India that uh, if a patient demands to see the inpatient case papers, the hospital is required to share that with him. but not the original a photocopy will do, right? So. 99% of the patients, they don't demand to see in, in patient case papers. So, so they get what they're getting anyway. But in the future, when this NDHM is implemented, they will get it in a way where it is linked to their own unique ID. And they can pull it from wherever they are across multiple systems. So if I am seeing a patient who was earlier seen in Calcutta, uh, and the patient doesn't need to give me a physical report. He can say, hey, I'll just give you consent, pull it from my Calcutta hospital. And that's it, it shows up in my app. Okay, so, so that's that... the powerful idea that the Indian uh, sort of system is trying to build out. It's it's well advanced. It, it should happen in the next couple of years, is my belief.
3: And I think that's amazing because I think that's one of the key issues that hospitals have um, in terms of making all records available. So, yeah. Yes. On
1: So extracting data using NLP can be a painful process. Uh, We are currently working on some observational studies uh, and we are doing it with VA where things are much more organized at a national level. Um, So I am very curious about uh, extracting data from documents that may not be in a standard format.
2: Uh, Yes. So are you asking how does it work? Yes. (laughs) Okay. So it it gets very technical very quickly, but I'll use an analogy of gold mining, right? So when you search for gold and people say data is the new gold, data is the new oil, it's actually very similar because when you go hunting for gold, suppose the three of us were to go hunting for the gold, for some gold. First thing we'll need to know is where to dig, right? Where is the gold mine? Uh, So when you're looking at a document of say 100 pages, first thing you need to know is where is the relevant data? So there may be a bunch of communication between hospitals and insurers, which is just uh, you know, administrative stuff, which has no medical information. So, so there is uh, a solution for that. I'll come back to that. So the second thing that a gold miner does is now he just extracts the raw ore. It's called ore, right? So he pulls out the, the stone and the rocks and whatever else comes with it. He knows that there is rich gold deposits in there, but it's still raw. Uh, so similarly, our algorithms can go and pull out that raw pharmaceutical information or the raw medical in- entity like a diagnosis or a procedure, uh, but uh, be able to pull it out very uh, reliably, right? Then the third part that is actually a chemical process in, in case of gold is purification. So you know, apply all sorts of chemistry and uh, remove the thing that you don't want, and finally, lo and behold, what you have is a gold bar. So we similarly have algorithms, a third set of algorithms, which can go and purify this extracted entities that come out from the discharge summary or the bill and whatever. Now, of course, there's a fourth step. Gold per se is useless, right? It's the jeweler who will make an ornament out of it, or it's the electronic chip manufacturer who will put it on a PCB circuit. Right, so, so there is a use case of code. Similarly, in AI as well, there is very sophisticated technology need to get to a point where you have a SNOMED codified procedure, an ICD 10 diagnosis, a loink lab report that takes these three steps, right? Extraction, purification, and of course, even first of all, identifying where it is. Uh, then an insurer will have a different use for this. A doctor will have a different use for this. And the hospital will have a different use for this. right? And I'm, I'm sure uh, Medicare or the government of the United States will have a different use for this. So that is outside our remit as med. We don't dictate what you do with it. Of course, we have ideas. But uh, the, the very uh, counterintuitive insight that came to me uh, after a, a few months of running this company is that It takes very sophisticated AI to do this apparently mundane process of extracting data. People think AI is all about building learning models on good data and building, throwing out predictions, which can change the world. Yes, it is. But guess what? You need very sophisticated image recognition to do the first step to now we have image recognition models which can look at these 100 pages and say, this is a result summary, this is a pill just by recognizing images. We have trained those models on image recognition. Then you need, as you said, be very sophisticated NLP extraction modules to pull this stuff out. And of course, then there is a whole bunch of not machine learning, but uh, standard uh, AI stuff, which does text matching, which looks up vocabularies like snowman and uh, ICDs. And then purifies those extracted raw stuff that was done in step two. So, so it's a very, uh, it's a very tedious process. You're absolutely right. It's not easy. And another very important insight, it can't be done by engineers alone. It needs a doctor also in the room, in the team and a doctor who understands technology because, uh, those terms are very confusing. Arthroplasty and angioplasty look very similar. So if you're looking at text matching, they may come out to be very similar but actually they're very different things, right? So, so you need to have this advanced uh, NLP type techniques and you need to have medical domain knowledge to be able to do this successfully. You're, you're right, it's very tough, but uh, I think we now are, we have the tools there are many, many people in the world who are trying to solve this problem.
1: That's amazing. So can you please um, tell our audience what SNOMED and ICD 10 stand for? Sure. Means. So
2: I think the genesis of this goes back to, again, uh, the U.S. system where, uh, I mean, doctors write the same thing in different ways. So I used to run Manipal Hospital, I told you, one of the hospitals in South India. In one hospital, I had like 15 hospitals that I was managing. One hospital would write knee replacement. Another one would write total knee replacement abbreviated to TKR. A third one would write knee arthroplasty. So when I would ask my IT head how many knee replacements happened in my network in the last month it took him a long time to figure it out because he's an IT guy he doesn't know that a knee arthroplasty is the same as a TKR right that's domain knowledge so and this was a problem world over so starting I think late mid 80s uh, ICD, ICD was done by the WHO as you probably know international classification of diseases that's now in its 10th edition, is going to the 11th edition soon. That is a system to to standardize diagnosis codes. So it converts everything into a six or seven digit number, right? Uh, SNOMED is even uh, bigger. While ICD focuses on diagnosis, SNOMED is again a consortium. It's a not-for-profit. It runs uh, out of the US, I think. Uh, it it gives a unique uh, eight or 10 digit number to pretty much every medical entity it could be a procedure it could be a diagnostic test it could be an observation it could be a measurement i mean there is a whole so there is nothing that a doctor can say which is medical and which is not codified in snomed so it has around 400000 terms under it right so now, the power of these coding systems is two way, twofold. One, they are numbers, so they can be analyzed and, uh, you know, they, they speak the language of computers, uh, which is how computers work, right? And computers work in numbers. And secondly, this standardized stuff, it doesn't matter whether a doctor is writing TKR or arthroplasty, it gets the same eight-digit SNOMED code. So now you're talking about the whole world being on SNOMED. You can actually say, uh, okay, in this hospital, uh, knee knee replacement cost $150,000 and another one, it cost $50,000. And the computer can do that analysis. In the past, it could not because they are different terms and it requires huge medical knowledge to be able to equate those different terms. So
1: you're saying that if needed, your algorithms, since they are also based on SNOMED, it could be used in US or UK in the future?
2: Oh, yes. In fact, I have a friend who is in Los Angeles, and he was telling me that uh, apparently the Trump administration had passed a rule last year that hospitals must give PDF versions of their documents to patients in an attempt to make it more patient-centric. Because as I said, interoperability is a problem. So the administration solution was, guess what, give everything to the patient. Now, the problem of giving everything to the patient is fine from the hospital, but the patient can't deal with 150 pages, right? So we tried our algorithms on some of uh, you know his patient's data and it works pretty well because, I mean, medicine is medicine. Uh, there are differences in the way doctors write stuff, but uh, the essential underlying relationships between uh, conditions and procedures and drugs don't change. So, I think our algorithms are well able to do that for US data as well,
3: if that was your question. So, you just alluded quite nicely to the next question, which is if you are able to tell within your network how much a procedure costs in various hospitals, are you able to provide this information to the patients so that that empowers them to be able to make a choice about where to go in terms of cost and in terms of quality as well? Yeah.
2: So that's the most important question we want to answer, I.B. Uh, as a doctor, uh, I get at least two to three phone calls a week from my friends, from my relatives, from people who know somebody who knows me. That, hey, I have this aunt in Bombay. She needs to have a XYZ. Where should she go? Right? Or Dr. ABC has referred my daughter to Dr. XYZ. Is that a good doctor or not? right? The answers to all these questions is in the data, because, and I'll I'll give you a slightly nuanced answer. There is no such thing as good. Good can be uh, defragmented into at least three, maybe four. One is cost, one is quality, and one is convenience slash empathy and other, other, other such softer aspects, right? So cost is a hard number. You can compare it. Quality is a much difficult, much more difficult thing to get a hold of. But there are proxies available. If one doctor uh, has, uh, you know, he's doing a hip replacement and sending a patient home in two days, and another one always keeps the patient there for seven days, well, we can't be sure. But if the guy who's sending, keeping the patient for seven days has a 20% readmission rate, and the other one has 0% readmission rate, that tells you something about the quality of the doctor. Of course, it's not so simple, there may be complexity, there may be age, there may be concomitant disease. There's lots of complexities in quality, but there are somewhat simplistic proxies that can be derived, right? They're not perfect, but they give you some idea. And the third one is, of course, in a way, distance. How far do I have to travel to see this guy, right? I mean, that's the easiest proxy for convenience in one way. Uh, so, so you're absolutely right, Ivy, this question, uh, is an important question not only from a doctor's point of view but also from a hospital point of view uh, where do I go? Uh, so, so that's something that we believe we should be able to solve in the next couple of years. There is an even harder question, which is what do I do? Once I go there, what should the doctor do and that is a question that IBM Watson tried to solve and it did not succeed because of various reasons. We can discuss if that's interesting to you but uh, my, my belief is that we are sitting in 2021, by 2025, uh, AI would have advanced so much that this what-to-do question would also be answered by AI, not to the patient, but to the doctor. So an oncologist may use an, an AI as an assistant to go read the literature, do whatever it has to do, do the search and pick up the three most important therapies that are relevant for that patient, and then oncologist can try to prescribe that for the patient. Uh, decision-making is going to be supplemented by AI, mm-hmm. uh, clinical decision-making, uh, but procedures like surgery or endoscopies, those, I, I, I don't think that th- that will take at least 10-15 years before robotic advances enough that I will subject myself to a robotic endoscopist. I, I don't want to do that right now.
3: Um, So that that brings me to the next question, which is, do you think hospitals would be happy for you to disperse that information to patients without them moderating um, the information that you provide? So, you know, for example, if if I'm a hospital, like you correctly said, who has a high admission rate, but there are underlying factors that the AI system isn't yet able to pick up, you know, such as in that particular area, they might not have enough rehab, they might not have enough um, support system in the community. A hospital might be slightly reluctant to have their information said as you know, their less quality, you know, quote coats. So do you know how you control for that?
2: No, no, you don't have to control for it because guess what, hospitals don't have a choice. It has been shown world over that making more information available to patients, helping them make informed decisions, is good for everybody. It may not be good for the hospitals, but it's good for the patient, it's good for the payer, it's good for the overall society, right? So I don't know if you know this, but Medicare publishes outcomes. It publishes costs. So you can go to any hospital and look at that. A part of this Trump law that I was talking about also forces hospitals to publish their tariff masters, so their price list. Uh, They're required to publish that. So uh, my, my feeling is that if I am a good hospital, I don't, I, I, I want my data to be published because I will be differentiated from the not so good hospital, right? Uh, but guess what? I'm also a citizen. I'm also a potential patient and I also need to go to a hospital. And when I need to go to a hospital, I want that data, right? So, so this information is symmetry of. Who's doing good work and who's not doing good work is systematically being broken down by governments and regulators because they realize that this information asymmetry is one of the biggest sources of inefficiency and then market failure. Uh, And and that's what AI is helping to do. And you will see a dramatic shift in health systems over the next five to 10 years because of this. Yeah, that's a
1: classic. Uh, example of the moral hazard. Looks like you're trying to address that. That would be great. So um, one of the amazing things about using AI in clinical care, I think, is it offers you with the ability to continuously monitor and collect data more frequently. So if we are going to be collecting data from the documents, how do you think that can be done?
2: Yeah, so there are two parts to that answer, Selvi. One is that there is a lot of technology being developed to collect data. Apple Health, Fitbit, I'm wearing one. These are these guys are collecting a lot of data. But the crux of the matter comes back to the personal health record issue that I talked about. That unless this data is sitting in a personal health record that I own and I control over because it is my body, it's not going to work. Apple Health may have a lot of my data, but Apple doesn't want to share it with Samsung. And Samsung doesn't want to share it With uh, Fitbit. And now, well, Fitbit, yeah, Fitbit is owned by Google now. So the the same war for data that was happening between hospitals will now start between tech companies. And that is not good for me as an individual. So, uh, So the benefit, the real benefit of all this data will only come to life if citizens control their own data. So I think that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is even if I have my own data, it's of no use to me unless I have access to at least 10, 15, 100 million other people's data. Because that gives me comparatives, that gives me cohorts, that gives me prediction models that can be trained on that. Uh, Amazon has an algorithm to say, if Selvi buys this sort of books and this sort of uh, kitchen stuff, then maybe somebody in Brazil Uh, who also uh, looks like Selvi, talks like Selvi, will also want to buy that, right? Same thing can be done for patients. If I'm a 45-year-old diabetic uh, with an HbA1c of 8, then prediction models can tell me that, look, there were 20 million others like you, and they ended up having a renal transplant three years from now. That's the path you are on, right? So the second part of the answer of this longitudinal data is a single point or a single individual longitudinal data is not very useful, but uh, 10 million people's longitudinal data without compromising their privacy, without taking, selling their data for marketing or targeting pharmaceutical ads to them, that of course should be avoided, but anonymized data allows AI algorithms to build predictions, to build, to also see the future. And good doctors know this, right? When when a good doctor sits a patient down and says, don't do this, This it's not good for your health. Where is that coming from? It's coming from the good doctor's experience. But AI can have a hundred times more experience than even the most experienced doctor in the world because an AI can look at hundreds of millions of data points.
1: Right, so um, I think you just uh, talked about all the things that I was going to ask. I just wanted to confirm um, a couple of things here. So the wearable technologies, do you see that taking off in india and two like you said i'm not going to benefit from seeing just my own data and you know we have data that are coming from the medical records from the documents and then we are going to have the data that's being collected by all these apps maybe stored in some kind of cloud and who gets access to that in, do we have a system in place? I mean, we are still trying to or struggling to regulate internet. So, if we don't have something in place to take care of that, I think it's going to be uh, a big problem in the future. Would you agree with that? No, no.
2: I, I see. I'll, I'll, I'll split the answer again in multiple pieces. Let's divide between wellness and disease. Wellness is a forever condition, you want to be well forever. So uh, it's a more of a consumer play. It's not a doctor play. So the Fitbits and Apple Health of the world is designed to hopefully keep you healthier and better health. Uh, but you will never be able to prove that Fitbit helped, right? So so that's a, that's a style, lifestyle, um, status, uh, being a part of the, you know, in-gang sort of a, go-to-market strategy. So so that's a different game. But let's talk about patients who are on dialysis, patients who are on congestive heart failure, patients who are on life-threatening disease, patients who have cancer, right? These guys uh, will get real benefit from the cohort analysis that I was talking about, right? But there are not that many devices which are being targeted to these guys, especially in the US and maybe even in Europe, because the privacy laws are so strict that the problem that you pointed out Selvi is not solved that okay even if I am this innovative company which can collect body fluid data on a dialysis patient and can inform the nephrologist that this guy is going into a failure better do a dialysis one day earlier right I, I need at least a few million people's data and I can't have it because of HIPAA and because of GDPR right so so it's a it's a vicious cycle where innovation doesn't happen because data is so scarce and the only excitement is in the wellness space where HIPAA doesn't apply, right? Uh, So so I think it is a problem in Western societies and Europe is realizing that, that GDPR is so stringent that Europe does not have a Facebook, does not have a Google, does not have any one of these companies. Now, I'm not arguing that the Facebook or Google model will work for healthcare. It will not. Because uh, the model of Facebook and Google is to use my healthcare data to sell advertisements. And that, that does not work for me. So I think there is a third model. And then there, of course, is a China model where your data is my data. If if I'm the government, then, then everything is mine, right? And I can do with it, whatever. So, so that's the China model. So India is trying to create this third model, which we think is the most Empowering for individuals that you will be in control of your data. You give consent to a doctor, you can withdraw the consent. You give consent to a hospital, you can withdraw the consent. There is complete traceability and auditability of who has seen your data, right? And uh, it's available to you 24-7. And the question you ask, Selvi, you may choose to give it to this innovative dialysis company because you are undergoing dialysis and you want the benefit of that prediction, okay, uh, take my data as long as that prediction comes to me as well. And that's how we as Budimed are getting data. One of our biggest customers is India's largest dialysis network. And they have told us that they are of course giving us anonymized data. They're not giving us personalized data and we don't want personalized data. We have no use for the name and the address of the individual, right? But we are getting all the machine data, the labs data, the the dialysis frequency data, and that is something that we are using to build those prediction models that we're talking about. So that's the third model. And we think that's the most powerful way that the world uh, will see the benefit of AI coming to healthcare. It won't come from the Facebook, Google model. And yes, China may have it, but I don't want to live in the China system. So, So that's a different story
1: Yeah, Um, so can you tell us now um, some of the products and solutions Budimed is working on currently? Yeah,
2: so I I refer to it. So like I said, we have the first product that hits the, the data is document classifier. Very sophisticated image recognition system, which can look at hundreds of pages and digitally index every page as one of the five categories. It's either discharge summary, a bill, uh, lab report, a uh, radiology report, or or one of the others, right? So so it does that in three, four seconds. And then there are three products downstream from that. There is a discharge digitizer, there's a build digitizer, and then there is, a, excuse me, a lab digitizer. So whatever pages are indexed as discharge summary, out of those hundred, there may be only two pages for discharge summary, go to the discharge digitizer and so on and so forth. Now, these guys have very different algorithms, Bills are mostly tables, so you need table extracting systems. discharge summaries are these complex uh, medical entities floating around in telegraphic English. They're not even full sentences. So that's a very different NLP system. And labs are also tables, but labs have this um, not only the lab value, but also the range and also the units. It could be microgram. So some, some labs will report platelets as 120,000 and some will say 1.2 into 10 to the power five, right? Uh, so, so the algorithm has to be smart enough to, to normalize that stuff. Uh, so, so that requires a slightly different uh, thing. So these four products in our mind are our phase one products because these are just digitization products. Then there comes the second wave of product, which is around this cohort development, hospital comparisons, fraud detection, so I'll, I'll give you a simple use case, right? A patient is admitted with fever and uh, extracted data shows that in 48 hours, you have done three CT scans, right? And your cohort analysis shows that a patient who's admitted in 48 hours, maybe does one CT scan, but three CT scans, I need an explanation. That is overuse or abuse of the system by the hospital. And that gets red flagged by this product that we call this uh, product Sentinel. It, it sits there and watches the data flowing through, and whatever it sees as an outlier from normal behavior for that diagnosis for that city uh, gets triggered as a, as a red flag, and then somebody human needs to go and investigate as to what happened. Uh, and finally, we haven't built this out yet because that's Wave Three. Is this dialysis stuff, the diabetes stuff, the cancer stuff? we will get there and there we will partner with others because we will enable our data to be used by any innovator who wants to come and do it because we know that's such a huge space. There's no way one company can do justice to that.
1: That sounds great. So with increased use of um, AI in healthcare, do you see the cost of care going down in the future? Look,
2: uh, there are multiple reasons why the cost of care changes, right? It can go up, it can go down. Uh, There are forces which increase the cost of care. That's just the medical technology, right? A pet CT scan costs a couple of million dollars. And that thing is getting better and better. Uh, A good linear accelerator costs upwards of five, six million dollars. So we we shouldn't be saying, hey, don't invent a better linear accelerator because it will be $10 million, right? And guess what? If, If a hospital buys a $10 million machine, it will reflect in the cost of care. So, so, so that's one force which is increasing cost of care. But there is a lot of waste and inefficiency in the system. Uh, there's a lot of repeated tests. There's a lot of wasted steps that are not needed. Uh, those are things which AI can help eliminate. It won't only be AI. I don't want to present AI as the panacea as the answer for everything. It requires a lot of what's called robotic process automation. That's another technology which helps automate a lot of things. It requires a lot of, uh, you know, transparency into why this is happening and how can a hospital avoid it. It also requires a lot of realignment of financial incentives. Why do you think so many hospitals today are paying AI companies to predict who's going to have a readmission? Because there's a financial incentive, they get punished if there's a readmission, right? Five years ago, there was no need for this prediction because they sent the patient home, they got the money and that's it. You know, that story is over. So uh, cost is a very complex metric. It involves inflationary forces, like I said about technology and it also involves deflationary forces like AI coming in or automation coming in to reduce. So what happens to the final number is, a very, is not a linear answer. It's a very complex. That's an
1: excellent point. So with health disparities seem to be widening by the day. Do you think AI would make this worse?
2: No, I actually think it will make it better in many ways. Uh, there is a term called democratizing expertise. Democratizing means making something available to everybody. So uh, I'm just working on a paper which for the Indian government, actually, which is that India has a shortage of doctors. We just have something like 5,000 neurosurgeons for 1.3 billion people and and so on and so forth. 6,000 dermatologists, some 7,000 cardiologists. Most of these guys are living in big cities. So if I am a farmer in a village, uh, 200 kilometers or 200 miles from a big city, and I have a chest pain, I need to first find a vehicle, a tractor or something, then I need to get on it and then sit on a road for two hours before I can get to a doctor. That can change with uh, mobile connectivity, with video consultations, and and so on and so forth. Now, all of this digital stuff uh, becomes very hard to do at scale, unless you have standardization and um, some sort of automation. So AI, exactly the thing that I was talking about earlier, uh, the digitization process will help doctors do a meaningful consultation sitting in New Delhi for patients who are in Coimbatore or in, uh, in or faraway places, right? Uh, that becomes possible. So, so there is a very powerful force which will make the inequality lower. Uh, so that's one part of it. Now, of course, there is the macroeconomic thing that when innovation happens, uh, you have what now five companies which are trillion dollar companies. This was unbelievable 10 years ago how can a company have a market cap of trillion dollars and all five of these companies have very uh sort of powerful uh, founders and multi-billionaires themselves from Jeff Bezos to Mark Zuckerberg and all these guys right uh so that also is a bigger source of inequality that when innovation happens which is so powerful and it is controlled by a few people then they they capture most of the value uh so so that is what it is. Uh, I don't know how that will reflect on healthcare disparities, but to my mind, uh, taking healthcare delivery out of the hospital and making it available to patients in their homes through Zoom, we are now having this conversation. I could be your doctor, right, and you could be telling me your problem. You're sitting on a different continent, and I can actually help you a lot if I if I was to engage in that conversation, right? So. Uh, Zoom is also possible because of some chip advances, some telecom advances. So all of this stuff works together. It's very hard to call out one technology and say it will make a difference. It's a convergence of multiple forces that that is going to improve, uh, and that is going to reduce inequality if that was your question. That is my belief.
1: Let's hope so. So um, as you mentioned, the telemedicine is on the rise. So when privacy is becoming a major concern, So data breaches in healthcare sector can have very drastic effects. What do you think can be done to protect the uh, patient's privacy in the digital era?
2: So uh, there there is something called privacy by design. You design your IT architecture in such a way that even if somebody hacks it, you don't lose much, right? There are many, many, tools and techniques that are a part of that privacy by design. One of them, for example, is a federated data architecture. Don't have a central database. And India is following that in in our NDHM design. If, If I have been to hospital one in one city and hospital two, my data will sit with that hospital. But when I need to show it to Dr. Ram, for example, it will be pulled together at that moment and appear on the app of Dr. Ram, right? That's how it works. So even if a hacker gets one hospital data, he gets only a fraction of my overall data. So so there is this federated uh, by design. Of course, there are these encryption tools. There there is a whole uh, sort of body of work around anonymization and de-identification. How do you do that in such a way that you can't be uh, traced back? But most important in my mind is that if you are not subjecting yourself to a business model which relies on using monetizing your data is a very nice word but it actually means selling your data right not directly to advertisers but indirectly to advertisers so if you move away from that business model uh, then uh, then you are much safer because there is no incentive to Use your data to make money. And that's why people like Google, Facebook, uh, all these uh, monetizing data companies have struggled and will continue to struggle in healthcare unless they come up with a different model which uh, assures the patient that this is your data and I'm just a guardian of your data. I'm not making money from your data. You pay me for being a guardian for your data. Now that's a model that could work because then my interests are aligned with my guardian's interests.
1: Great point. I totally agree with you on that. Um, So are there any pitfalls associated with use of AI in healthcare, in your opinion? Oh,
2: there are so many of them. (laughs) First of all, it's just emerging. It's not very uh, developed. So it's a a cutting edge science field and things change uh, very rapidly. Uh, Secondly, uh, it's a learning machine and the machine will learn uh, what the data tells it. So you you have seen so much debate in Google and many other areas of biases. So the biases of the human data also run into the AI thing. Only thing is, we don't blame the human so much, we blame the AI a lot, right? Uh, so though so, so that's another problem. Third problem, which is the most important one, is uh, the quality of the data. It's not usable right now. And, and therefore, just the other day, Andrew NG, and one of the Fathers of AI, he just published a paper saying that 70% of the value of AI comes from cleaning of the data, very manual labor intensive, painstaking work. But everybody wants to write algorithm, nobody wants to clean the data, right? Uh, so, so, so that's also very important. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, it's a scientific area and it will learn and improve uh, over a period of time but it will not be a straight line it will be a it
3: will be a twisted line yeah and it's interesting you talked about cleaning data because it's, like you said it's time intensive and requires the right people to do it do you think with the SNOMED and ICD-10 um, coding um, internationally that would help with the data collection itself being as clean as it could be coming true to you and
1: yeah so
2: you're right. So that was the original intent of creating these coding bank systems that let the source itself codify it. And that happens in the US, for example, right? I mean, US hospital cannot send a claim to the insurer in English. It has to be a bunch of codes, Phenomids, DRGs, ICD, CPT-4. These are the codes that are used in the US. Right? You're asking, is that the way forward? Well, yes and no, because guess what? There is a war of codes as well. There's so many codes systems. U.S. uses CPT 4 for historical reasons. It's controlled by the American Medical Association. It does not want to give it up, give up that control. Uh, uh, Europe has uh, many different coding systems. SNOMED is one of the more important ones there. So there's a lot of legacy in this ID. Uh, so uh, does coding help AI? For sure, it does because without that, you don't have standard terminologies. But is the effort needed to get to code uh, to be done at the hospital level or at the doctor level or can it be done by an nlp our view of course it may be a biased view because we are an ai company is that nlp is good enough to do it you don't need to bother the hospital with all these it expenses uh, just write what you feel comfortable writing and the nlp will take
3: and then just to follow on to that because so you know with information such as ongoing vitals, that kind of information. Sometimes the quality of that information and the consistency of that information is variable. So take for example, intensive care unit and you're monitoring a patient um, on, you know, on, the, on the machine. That information sometimes may not be complete in the terms of the data sets for say for every hour, maybe because the patient went to scan or something like that. And then you're missing a bit of that data. And that creates a vacuum in terms of interpretation later on. Um, Is there anything that your system does to try and balance out some of these inconsistencies in terms of data sets that gets provided? So say for example, if we use a Fitbit as an example of that, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes you're going to take it off, sometimes you know you're doing whatever, which means that not all the information is captured. Um, And then You know, as the person on the receiving end who wasn't there to witness what's happened, how do you account for, you know, that bit of it? You know, that's part of some of the cleaning stuff that you need to do.
2: Look, there there is a, I mean, data science is now decades old, and there is a whole bunch of mathematical ways to take care of the problems that you're referring to. Some of this is called sparsity, the data is very sparse. Some of this is called missing data, that in longitudinal range, you don't have. All the values. There are many, many mathematical mathematical ways to correct this in such a way that it doesn't impair your final prediction. That that's basically what you want to achieve, right? Uh, so look, what you are getting is better than getting nothing. You are saying, how do we get to perfection? That's a long journey, and it's a it's a cycle of as people get benefit from it, as hospitals get benefit from it, there will be more diligent in uploading better data.
1: Um, what is your advice for students like us who is contemplating entry into healthcare AI space?
2: Uh, jump in. Uh, my advice is jump right in, but jump in with your eyes open to the fact that it is not as glamorous as headlines in business magazines make it sound like. Uh, it's science and science uh, is slow and painful and requires patience. Uh, and it's a merger of two different fields. So you need to have respect for other field to learn their language. Uh, Computer scientists need to learn some bit of healthcare, and healthcare guys need to learn some bit of algorithms and the underlying principles. Uh, So it requires a lot of open-mindedness and curiosity. Uh, The good news is you can go on Wikipedia and learn a lot, right? So it's it's no longer a closed field like it used to be a, a few decades ago. Uh, So it's very exciting, Uh, it's challenging, and sometimes it's painstaking, but it's a whole bunch of fun. So I will highly encourage any one of you, your colleagues or classmates to jump all the way.
1: That's a very practical and valuable insight. Thank you. Yeah. And then our last question is just, um, you left the
3: glamorous life of being a neurosurgeon uh, to being a CEO, to being an entrepreneur. What was the thing that spurred on that journey?
2: Well, I think life is a journey. You do uh, things uh, which are exciting and uh, you are always forward-looking, not backward-looking. right? So I, I really enjoyed being a doctor. I think that patient connect and the value you can create for a patient is is amazing. But I also enjoy being an entrepreneur because the scale of impact that I think I can have is much bigger. Uh, right? A neurosurgeon doesn't get uh, interviewed by Imperial College students, so. <laughs> you, you say that, we did have a neurosurgeon two episodes ago. <laughs> no, uh, I just saying that lightheartedly, but the point is, uh, we living in very excited time, so I'm glad to be where I am, and I feel very blessed. So, uh, thank you for your time and for your question, and I hope uh, you
0: guys have benefit out, out of this. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. We've learned so much and now uh, we hope our listeners also enjoy listening as well. Thank you very much.